There are many mysteries that even an ordained minister cannot answer. And I have to say, the one that is weighing heaviest on my heart right now is what happened to all the temperatures between 73 and 84? Where did they go? (laughs) I hope we will see them. I miss them. Our message series these last couple weeks that Reverend Ken and I have been preaching and sharing with you is called Stories with Soul. It is a message series about children's literature, about the wisdom that can be found in stories that are told very simply and concretely, but that have lessons to teach all of us of any age. Today's book is one of my favorite books, but I don't expect that all of you will recognize it. It's a Dr. Seuss book, and it's definitely like, you know, kind of the lesser known deep cuts of the Seuss canon. I see a couple parents nodding who've seen this book before. It's called I Am Not Going to Get Up Today. Yeah, I Am Not Going to Get Up Today. Thank you all for being here, by the way, and not doing what the main character of this book did. This is our hero in the book. A little boy with no name that we ever find out. And uh, this book has a very simple premise, as you might have guessed. There's no real story arc. There's no crisis and resolution. There's really not anything that happens except what's happening right there. The first couple pages of the book are narrated in the boy's voice. He says, please let me be. Please go away. I am not going to get up today. The alarm can ring. The birds can peep. My bed is warm and my pillow's deep. So today's the day I'm going to sleep. Own it, kid. Good. (laughs) Now, when I was a child and I read this book, this kid was my hero, right? (laughs) He was so cool. He was telling his mom off like, yeah, mom, this is what I'm going to do. Let's pan out on the whole scene here. So this is what his room looks like. There's his mom. Let's zoom in on her face for a second. How's mom doing? (laughs) Now that I'm an adult, mom is the hero of this book. She is stone cold calm, right? She's got her little egg, her soft boiled egg that she was coming in to bring her son. And her kid is just relishing rolling around in this pool of defiance that he has poured for himself. And he goes on and on. She doesn't say a word throughout the whole book. She just stands there watching him. He says, you can bring in ice cream sundaes. You can bring in helicopters, police officers, a team of tap dancing penguins, frogs falling on the roof, a big brass band. And look at her. She's just calm and steady as a stream in the forest. Equanimity personified. And at the end of the story, she speaks the only line that she says in the whole book. She says, I guess he really means it. (laughs) And then she looks at the police officer and she looks down at the egg. She says, so I guess you can have the egg. Her son is, uh, you know, if you're a parent, kind of annoying. And he'll have to face the consequences of his choice. We know he's losing his breakfast, right? So that's one thing. But the mom is not letting herself get pulled in. She's not letting herself get hooked into that drama and that emotional experience 
that he's having, which is why she is such a freaking champion in this book, because that's hard to do. If you've ever been a parent, if you've ever been a spouse, if you've ever been a friend, if you've ever had a close relationship with someone where that other person is really in the middle of something, she is not letting herself get pulled into that. The reason I chose this book today is because I wanted to talk about what she is able to do so well. This mom is the picture of self-differentiated connection. What is that? Self-differentiated connection. Self-differentiated connection is a really healthy way for us to interact with each other. It looks something like this Venn diagram right here. In every relationship, there is a me and there is a you. And then there is some overlapping area of we. But in a healthy relationship, we hold all three spaces for each other and with each other. We each of us hold some independent psychological separation. We have our own thoughts and emotions. We have our own actions and agency and choices that we make, right? That's healthy for each of us to do. And when we're in this kind of a place, we're able to hold our honest and authentic intentions for what we want to bring into that we space that we share with someone else. We can stay connected to our values, to our source, to our center of spirituality, to the things that animate our lives, and we can stay connected to each other. That's what self-differentiated connection really means. Now, we don't always do this well. The poet Robert Bly talks about another way that we can often interact, especially with the people who we love the most, who are closest to us. He says, our disasters come from letting nothing live for itself, from the longing that we have to pull everything, even friends, into ourselves and let nothing alone. We often do this out of great love. And yet it causes often us and them great suffering. I'm guessing that we all know what it's like to have that child or that partner or that friend or that acquaintance maybe even, someone we work with, someone we see and know on a regular basis, and have that feeling of really wanting something for them. Really having a sense that we know what would be good for them, what would be best for them. And we may even be right. But we know what it's like to watch them not do that thing. To decide that they won't be that way. Or they can't accomplish the thing that we wish they could accomplish. Or they won't let go. Or they can't cooperate in the way that we want them to. Sometimes it's not that they won't, that they choose not to. Sometimes it's not that they can't, that they couldn't do it if they wanted to. Sometimes we don't even know. We just know that they don't. They just don't do it. And that can break our hearts. When we draw another person into ourselves, 
and that you and I start to overlap more and more into that we, that can actually be a beautiful thing that feels really good when we're on the same page. But human beings are different, right? We're never always on the same page. Healthy difference is necessary for us to live. It's part of what makes this world turn. The psychiatrist Murray Bowen, who's one of the pioneers of family therapy, and the rabbi Edwin Friedman, who took a lot of Murray Bowen's ideas and talked about how these things play out in families, but also in any group of like-minded people who gather together, any community, any church, any workplace, any nation or culture, where people are sharing common values. Both of these professionals, both of these men, talked about how in groups and communities of people who share some common goals and values, there can be a tendency in us to fuse with each other, to increase that overlap, to blur the psychological boundaries between me and you, between ourself and others which can atrophy our own ability to function emotionally and intellectually. We actually talk a little bit about this in our core values and beliefs at Wellsprings, and it's kind of a deep cut in the core values and beliefs, too. It's not one that we talk about all the time. We have listed in our core beliefs this idea of a God-shaped whole, right, which you've probably heard about before. We say we believe that a growing, honest, spiritual life fills our God-shaped holes and deepest yearnings. Efforts to fill these holes with materialism, with unhealthy relationships, and with substance abuse lead to despair and loneliness. Now, we list three things there, and we talk about two of them, I would say, fairly often. We talk about substance abuse. We talk about how our addictions can be uh, liars, essentially, that will invade those God-shaped holes and try to fill them for us. And thank God we talk about that at Wellsprings, because our broader society doesn't talk about that very much. We are blessed to have our addictions in recovery ministry where we can discuss those things. And we talk about materialism, I would say. We talk about sort of how the things, the gadgets, the big houses, the new clothes, all of those things are not going to be what really feeds us and fuels those holes in our spirit and in our lives. Unhealthy relationships are kind of a sticky one, right? We all have relationships surrounding us all the time. And I think we all bristle, I know I do, at the suggestion that they might be unhealthy, in some way. I know that for me, when I look at that list of the things that we fill our God-shaped holes with that lead to despair and loneliness, I feel like I have a pretty good distance, a pretty good clear seeing of my relationship to materialism, and a pretty good distance and clear seeing of my relationship to substances. For me, I don't always feel like I have a good distance to see how healthy my relationships are. I know that for me, much of my life has been spent in unhealthy relationships, often that I couldn't really see until I looked back on them later on. Often trying to figure out, in the midst of those relationships, who really am I when I get close to someone? Who am I and what parts of me are shifting or attenuating my expression, my personality, 
in order to match that person, in order to please that person. Those are tough boundaries and borders for me to walk, and they always have been. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I know that I've often spent a lot of time trying to shift and suit other people's needs in my life, but ironically and paradoxically, at the same time, I often am trying to fix them in the process. Anybody ever try to fix someone? How's that working out for you? (laughs) This is a really common thing, especially for people in helping professions, people who go into ministry and education and counseling and medicine even. This is really the shadow side of our gifts often. We have these great gifts. It's not just people in helping professions, but often people in helping professions have these gifts that can be used to help folks who are struggling find their own solutions in very powerful ways. But sometimes it's difficult to know when to say when. Just like any other addiction, sometimes it's tough to know when to stop and to not try and do things for those other people, to not try and project what we want onto them. I read recently on a recovery forum for people who can slip into these unconscious habits around unhealthy relationships, this sentence that hit me like a punch in the gut. Accept that your fantasy or dream of how others would be if they changed is your fantasy and dream and not necessarily theirs. Ooh. I'm going to read that again. Accept that your fantasy or dream of how others would be if they changed is your fantasy and dream and not necessarily theirs. We cannot make anyone do anything. That mom cannot make that kid get out of bed. We cannot make our loved ones make the choices that we want them to make. We cannot change or fix them. The ironic thing is that that's the most liberating thing in the world, right, when it applies to us. It's true that no one can make us do anything. But it can be the most frustrating thing in the world when we would really love for someone in our lives to act in a particular way, to love us differently, to heal themselves, to make the right choice, to change Of course, we can always put consequences in place. But it is ultimately their choice what they will do with those consequences. I found that living with this truth, the only thing that gives me comfort in living with this truth is a steady faith, a faith that can be hard to see sometimes that we can be ourselves with our own thoughts and feelings and choices and still stay connected to each other. That is hard to see that faith sometimes, but that's the only thing that keeps me going. The Quaker contemplative Parker Palmer talks about this in his essay, Being Alone Together. He says, to have intimacy and love for ourselves and with others, 
We must be solitudes protecting and bordering and saluting each other. We must let that whole Venn diagram exist. The essay in Parker Palmer's book where he talks about this ends with a particular story. It's a story about a high school shop teacher and his principal. This high school shop teacher was in a circle of trust, Parker Palmer calls it, these circles that he would facilitate for educational institutions, nonprofits, other kinds of organizations where professionals could come together and share and get support around their experiences in a you know, deeper, broader way than you get in your annual professional review, which may not feel like support depending on where you work, right? This circle of educators had been meeting regularly and sharing what was challenging for them in their workplaces over time. And this shop teacher, this high school shop teacher, by his own admission, kept coming, kept coming, but just didn't really get it. He didn't share very much. Parker Palmer said he came up to him after almost every session and said, what are we doing here? And Parker Palmer said, I I see your frustration, but I don't think I can answer that question. You need to decide what you're doing here. After weeks and weeks of this, the shop teacher finally showed up to one of the groups visibly agitated, visibly frustrated. And when it came his time to share, he told the group about a conflict that he'd been in with his boss, with the principal, for years. His principal had told him three years prior that he needed to sign up for a training. There was a new high-tech way that people were teaching shop classes in high schools all across the country. And the principal said, hey, you know, we'll pay for you to go to this institute where you can learn all about these new methods. We want you to do this so that you can bring them back and incorporate them into your classroom here. And the shop teacher was so offended by the suggestion. He said, this is all just trendy new tech stuff. I teach my kids the fundamentals. I've been teaching for decades This is a waste of my time and your money to send me this institute. I'm not going to go. The principal said, okay, I hear you have strong feelings about this. I'll go talk to some people. We'll think it through. I'll come back to you after I get a sense of uh, whether this is really worthwhile. They went around like this for three years. Every couple of months, the principal would bring this back up. Say, you know what? I've looked into it. I know some other teachers who've gone. I really think this is going to be valuable. And the shop teacher dug in even deeper, said, there's no way I'm going. Until finally the principal said, you know what? This is the requirement of your job. And if you don't commit to this, to continuing your education in this way, you're not going to have your job for much longer. When the shop teacher started to share the story, he realized something, or maybe the first time, He said, I'm afraid that if I go, I'll learn that I've been doing a disservice to my kids all these years. That these things that I have dug into so deeply about teaching them the right way, what if this is the right way? What if I can't understand it? What if it's so far beyond what I've learned? What if I'm so over the hill that I can't even keep up 
still don't want to go, he said. But now I understand why. With the space and the support to see himself clearly, he could articulate what was really going on for him. This had been the biggest struggle of his professional life for years. It had left him tense and stressed and feeling unappreciated. And Parker Palmer said, maybe you could go back to your principal and tell him that. And he did. And when the principal heard that, instead of the anger, instead of the blame, instead of the digging in the heels, he said, you know what? I can understand that. You still have to go. He said, or I'll lose my job. He said, yeah. But the principal said, you know what? I'm scared, though, too. I'm scared that you won't be able to learn this stuff. I'm scared that we would have to let you go after you've given so many years to this school and to these kids. What if I went with you? Let's go together. They went together. Now, that's a great story with a really good ending. I wish that I could tell you that when we own our own experiences and share them like that, that the other person will always respond that well. But we know that that's not true. And yet we also know that we will never know how they respond to who and what we really are feeling unless we try. We'll never know what they have to say to that unless we share it with them. As much as we try to fool ourselves into thinking that we can spin it or convince or cajole or manipulate someone else into accepting our point of view, we can never control someone else's response. Even if we have the best argument, we are never in charge of what they do next. All we can do is own our own story and give them that opportunity to respond. And we might be surprised by what they have to say. Back in March, the governor of North Carolina signed a bill into law. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was a bill that would require people to use public bathrooms corresponding to their biological sex on their birth certificate. Now, from my experience and from what I know, I have a degree in women's studies. I have to use it somewhere, so let me use it here. I have to say that the idea that you would require people by law to use a bathroom that corresponds to their biological sex already doesn't make sense scientifically because there is enough natural diversity in our chromosomal makeup, in our hormonal expression, in the appearance and the function of our internal and external reproductive organs that the concept of purely binary biological sex is already a red herring. Look it up, all right? (laughs) But I point that out because I believe that this law was not actually designed to make sense. I think that this law was designed to address some people's discomfort with the fact that transgender people exist. 
to address their discomfort with the fact that there are people living and breathing and walking and working and having families and loving each other among us. For perhaps the first time in human history, certainly in the history of this country, doing all of that, being who they are without shame. And that makes some people very uncomfortable. I'm not even going to judge why or how, but it makes some people very uncomfortable. And there are some people who are so uncomfortable they want to use the law to bring the rest of the world back into a place where everyone is thinking like they do about these things. Now there are copycat laws popping up in other states. And as a response, trans people have done something, uh, I would say, pretty unpredictable. They've started posting bathroom selfies like these. Uh, Who'd have thought that the bathroom selfie would become the social justice tool of choice in the 21st century? (laughs) But it has been. (laughs) Trans people have been posting these images online of themselves in the bathroom that they choose to use, or in some cases posting pictures that demonstrate the incongruousness of the bathroom that the law would force them to use. They've been posting these pictures online with hashtags like, we just need to pee. (laughs) And what's incredible to me, apart from the bathroom selfies for social justice thing, which I didn't see coming, what's incredible to me about this particular kind of movement for justice is all that they're doing is showing who they are. That's all that they're doing. They're saying, I am who I am, and I want you to see me, and I hope there's a place we can connect. It's me, you, and we. That's all this is. They know that there are people who will say no, who will not see them. But they are refusing to get drawn into that other person's idea of who they are. They are masters of self-differentiated connection. And they have an incredible faith in our common humanity that there will be people out there who can't see their faces and not recognize that they are real. That takes amazing faith in a world that has in some cases literally tried to beat that faith out of them. It's the faith that says, I know I'm a person, and I know that if I show you that enough times, maybe eventually it'll sink in. If we can hold that faith that we are beloved, we can be honest with each other about who and where we are. Even if there are consequences that might be unjust and unfair and heartbreaking, If we hold that faith, we will know that it is worth it at the end of the day. Jesus, the New Testament, told his disciples, when a man strikes you, turn the other cheek. When a man strikes you, turn the other cheek. Much has been written about this. For me, I don't believe that Jesus is suggesting we should be weak or passive. I don't believe Jesus is saying we should submit to abuse. 
what I see Jesus saying is actually the heart and the brilliance of nonviolence. What Kathleen was talking about earlier. Nonviolent resistance that says, when you smack me in the face, when you or anyone doesn't border and protect my solitude but invades it, I'm going to show you that I still respect myself, that you don't have the last word on my worth. I'm going to humiliate that person. Literally, humiliate means humble them. Humble them into showing them that they don't have the power to make anyone feel less than human. It's tough to do. Jesus told us to do a lot of stuff that's tough to do. That's why he's Jesus, I guess. But it can be an incredibly powerful example. We can practice maintaining the borders of our solitude every day. It's never something we'll achieve just like any spiritual practice. It's something that we can look for opportunities to walk into, to try on, to see how it works for us. We don't have to like or appease our kids' defiance, but we don't have to let them pull us into their drama. We don't have to like our boss's point of view on what's required for our job, but we can choose to see our response clearly, to understand it, and to make our choice about what consequences we're willing to accept or not. We don't have to like the way that anyone else lives their life. But we don't have to let our desire to please or avoid conflict make us paper over our own honest experiences, speaking to them, owning them. This is how we maintain a steady faith in our own belovedness and in everyone else's. A steady faith that doesn't require us to hurt anyone on our way, to get our way. On Memorial Day weekend, we know how many have been hurt. That's not what we have to choose in our interactions. And if we hold that faith, maybe we can even find a way to go together and move forward together. It is a chance for us to practice remembering the deepest truth. That no matter what happens or comes, we are still and forever beloved. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our strength of our own beating hearts, of the spirit that animates each of our lives with a unique imprint, knowing that there is no one else quite like we are, there is no one else with the gifts that we have to give, or else why would we be here? We practice gratitude today for our own solitudes, for the ways that our full selves can be brought into someone else's life and simply by our example, not even knowing the power of what we do sometimes, we can inspire others. We can connect with others. 
and we can help them grow into their fullest and most worthy and beloved selves. For these prayers I've spoken aloud and for the prayers that each of these people carries silently on their hearts this morning, we say amen.